The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. The eyes of the world, the eyes of the populations of the world are on you and we have your numbers. That lingering central please remain and we'll see what comes next. We need to make sure that what sits there on a piece of paper is actually going to turn into tangible, actionable projects on the ground that are going to make a difference to people's lives. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. Good afternoon, I'm Ewan Potts. Well, on today's special programme, 12 months after the UK finally fully left the European Union, we're going to be taking a deep dive into how Britain is doing so far. But first, Boris Johnson can't quite shake off the controversies of 2021. The Prime Minister is facing questions over text messages related to the refurbishment of his Downing Street flat. Yeah, the texts show Johnson asking for help to fund a revamp of his residence from a Tory party donor, Lord Brownlow, whilst promising to look at his plans for a great exhibition. Well, the Prime Minister was heavily criticised for not disclosing the messages during an investigation into the funding of that refurbishment, but ultimately he was cleared of wrongdoing. The Conservative Party, though, do you remember, was fined by the Electoral Commission just last month after failing to accurately declare all of Lord Brownlow's donations. Let's go on to the subject of our special programme this morning. It's one year since Britain started going it alone, the country marking the milestone of 12 months outside the European Union, including its single market, customs union and all of the political and legal structures. Well, it was what the Brexit hardliners called for, but the teething issues haven't gone away. The UK is still locked in a dispute with the EU over trade in Northern Ireland. Last year saw a flotilla of French fishing vessels protest over fishing licences and the resignation of the man charged with managing the exit, David Frost, suggesting that all was not well in Brexit land. So how do the great British public feel about it all? Is there a pang of buyer's remorse or are leavers and remainers sticking to their camps? Let's discuss this with Joe Twyman, founder of Delta Poll, who's been surveying the public about it all. Joe, what's the latest on whether uh, Brexit voters, leavers, think this has been a success? Uh, well, uh, this, of course, is an interesting question. You can look at it in many different uh, in many different ways. If you ask people how they would vote were the, uh, were the referendum question repeated, you find that the vast majority of leaders and remainers uh, say they would vote the same way. And so more than three quarters of, uh, of them believe that uh, uh, believe that the way they voted was correct, if you like. There's, there's relatively little in the way of bias remorse, and these things cancel each other out. Uh, but when you ask people, OK, well, do you believe that the government has generally done the right thing or the wrong thing when it comes to negotiating with the European Union as part of Brexit, you find that only around half of Leavers believe that uh, believe that the government is doing the right thing. And indeed, only one in 10 currently believes that Brexit has been a success. The vast majority instead believe that Brexit will be a good thing, but it may take some time to get right. So it shows that uh, it shows that we're very much in the stage of, uh, of an evolving situation at the moment and, uh, and that Leave voters have not been convinced completely by what's happening so far, but they hope that in future things will be more aligned to their expectations. 
And what about those Remain voters? Have any of them changed their view? Because that's quite radical for the people that did vote to leave, that they think that it's not been handled well. So what about Remain voters? Well, in actual fact, Remain voters in many cases are the flip side of that argument. And so in the same way that the vast majority of Leave voters have uh, still say they would vote to leave, the vast majority of Remain voters still vote, say that they would vote to remain. Around about a quarter of Remain voters believe that the government is doing the right thing when it comes to negotiating the European Union. So not complete dismissal of, uh, of that. Uh, and only actually around four in ten believe uh, that we should do everything we can to rejoin the European Union. You have around a third that say that, yes, Brexit was a mistake, uh, but it has happened and that we should move on. And so uh, there's a recognition from a sizable proportion of Remainers that, uh, that although they didn't uh, didn't approve of what uh, of what happened and didn't vote for it. Uh, there is a sort of, in some cases, begrudging acceptance that uh, that it should happen. Interesting stuff. Joe Twyman, founder of Delta. Thanks so much for your time today. So Brexit as a process rather than just a single event. Well, as we mentioned earlier, Lord Frost is out. Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary, is in as the UK's current lead negotiator with Brussels. So how is this new chapter of the EU relationship actually going and what next for it? Let's discuss with Jill Rotter, who's a researcher at UK in a Changing Europe, also Senior Fellow at the Institute for Government. Jill, welcome back to the programme. Thanks for being with us. How is this post-Frost organisation then of Brexit, and there are still some negotiations ongoing? Well, we don't really know quite exactly how the post-Frost organisation is going to work. What we do know is that Liz Truss, assisted by a new Minister of State for Europe, uh, someone called Chris Heaton-Harris, will be chairing the Partnership Council. That's the big uh, joint UK-EU committee that oversees the Trade and Cooperation Agreement and the Joint Committee on the uh, on the Withdrawal Agreement, which oversees... Uh, the implementation, among other things, of the Northern Ireland Protocol. So they're doing that part of UK-EU relations. But Lord Frost did more than that. Lord Frost was also overseeing some of the work of a thing called the um, uh, the Border Group, which was looking at how you implemented the new UK border. That's an important part of the sort of process of Brexit to get the UK border up and running properly. But also... Um, a really interesting piece, which they've been just recruiting for, called the Brexit Opportunities Unit. Uh, they went on quite a big sort of search to bring somebody in to head this up. And I think they were just only getting up and running when Lord Frost decided to walk. And just before he left, he made quite a big speech about how we need to seize the opportunities of Brexit. Mm. He was initiating a review of what we call retained EU law, all that back catalogue of EU law that we transferred over under Theresa May into the UK statute book. Uh, but he was going to say we need to look again to see whether that really fits what the UK wants. And also looking for new opportunities around regulatory divergence, uh, because he argued, and I think many other leavers might argue this too, that there's only any point in leaving if you use the opportunity leaving gives you to do things differently, if you're just basically going to follow EU laws, but sit outside the single market, it was a bit yeah. of a self-defeating enterprise. How, how is the UK's relationship with the Europe at the moment? Obviously, we have lots of 
spats with France, but uh, it's, that's been the case even when we were in the European Union. How, how are relations with, with, with Brussels and the rest of the, the 27 nations? Well, it's quite interesting. I think uh, we've seen sort of rows between David Frost, who was quite a sort of belligerent character um, over the future of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, he published a white paper in the summer saying basically the thing needed to be massively rewritten. The EU keeps on reminding Boris Johnson and David Frost that they signed up to this uh, in good faith as part of getting their withdrawal deal over the line. So there wasn't much EU sympathy there. Though David Frost's hardline tactics, you could argue, uh, got a new set of proposals from the EU's uh, you know, chief negotiator, uh, Maris Tepcevic, that uh, he put forward some proposals for easing the operation of the Northern Ireland Protocol without ditching the entire set of principles. And those discussions that are still ongoing. Uh, I think the French fishing licences is a bit of a sideshow because what we see here is that sometimes when the government is in difficulty with its backbenchers, hmm. uh, the one thing that really unifies people on the Conservative backbenches is a bit of a fight with Europe. Not clear it resonates so much with the public from those figures Joe Twyman was talking about, but it certainly goes down quite well on the Conservative backbenches. But equally, a bit of grandstanding against the UK probably doesn't do President Macron's re-election prospects much harm. And what I thought was really notable about the fishing licence row was that the French were clearly a bit frustrated that they were raising these issues about, um, about the non-availability of fishing licences to French boats that couldn't prove historic rights to fish in uh, waters, particularly around the Channel Islands. Um, but, uh, but the Commission didn't really back the French up, which was quite interesting. Uh, so France was left a bit isolated there. Um, yes. But I think, you know, may see more of that, uh, more of that ang- uh, Anglo-British-French tension uh, until we get to the presidential elections in May. Yeah, that, it was fascinating, wasn't it, the reaction within Europe? And, and on that point, there was some anxiety that Brexit would lead to pole exit, would threaten or weaken the European Union. You know, now that we're a year in, where are we in that sort of sentiment about the impact on, on the EU, if any? Well, I think uh, it's quite interesting because, you know, your questions were asking British people whether they thought Brexit had been handled well. We know that the EU was initially quite worried that uh, Brexit might trigger other member states to think about leaving and that the political leaders in those EU member states were particularly worried about uh, if the UK got a very good Brexit deal, that it could uh, boost support for their relatively fringe but uh, Eurosceptic parties in the EU. I think, you know, five years on, you would say that looking at the sort of, you know, way in which Brexit has both caused political difficulties in the UK, the turbulence that the UK government has been through, the very thin deal that the UK ended up with with the EU. Uh, I don't think uh, that the EU is particularly worried that loads of other people are sitting there saying, we want what they've got, they've got a much better deal than we have. So I think the EU has seen off that threat. It does, of course, have other very big issues And this, I think, is one reason why the EU isn't very keen to spend much time or energy on Brexit and regards it as as a sort of continuing source of irritation. 
are, are the big sort of rule of law issues. So the dispute that the EU is in with both the Polish government and the Hungarian mm. government about their respect for the judiciary, Jill. or uh, civil rights, etc. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. Now, one of the big questions about Brexit was how it would impact the economy. New border controls come into force this month and have the potential to inflict economic damage on a pandemic-battered Britain. Well, the, the Office for Budget Responsibility says that Brexit has been a drag on growth. It's seen as cutting GDP by 4% over the long run as trade with close neighbours shrinks and new trade deals provide only limited opportunities. Well, let's get some analysis on this now with Michael Gassiorek, who's Professor of Economics and Director of the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex. Michael, thanks so much uh, for joining us today. Now, UK-EU trade has suffered, but can you break down by how much? And is it possible to take a stab at separating uh, the influence, separating the influence of the, the pandemic? Yes, yeah, so... Uh have assessed the impact of trade is quite complex precisely because as various things are impacting on trade, not just Brexit, but also the pandemic. So if we separate out the period before January 2021, before the new agreement with the UK came into force, we see that the share of UK goods trade with the EU, so exports, about 50% of our exports went to the EU and about 55% of our imports. Now, prior to the end of 2020, there was not much change in those shares. Um, there was probably a bit of a fall in the share of imports from the EU, and that's with regard to goods trade. With regard to services trade, there's more evidence that even prior to 2021, there was already a beginning of a decline in the share of UK services exports and imports with the EU. Now, I've talked about both goods trade and services trade because it's really important to understand that the UK is an important exporter, trader of services as well as goods. In 2020, just over 40% of our exports in 2020 were in services. And if you compare that to about 15 or 20 years ago, it was only 25%. So in thinking about UK trade, it's actually really important to think about goods and services. Now back to your question as to the impact of Brexit on UK trade. You're right, you do need to separate out the impact of Brexit and the impact of other factors such as COVID. And also when one hears statistics such as, you know, the UK trade has declined with the EU, you always have to ask yourself the question relative to what? What's the benchmark here? What are we comparing to? So what we've done is to look at that UK trade. And if you look at UK trade in 2021, in comparison to UK trade over the preceding three years, it appears that using the very latest data that came out a month or two ago, that UK exports to the EU are down by about nearly 14% and UK imports are down by nearly 23-24%. These are big numbers. If you go back to what I said earlier, that roughly 50% of our trade is with the EU and you've got in aggregate a decline of about 14% in exports and 23% in imports, these are big amounts. 
Yeah, I, I think it's in, in, interesting and important that you, you make um, the, those points that it's very easy for the figures to be muddied, especially when it's so politically charged. What about then the trade that the UK is doing with the rest of the world? Is that gaining? Do we see compensation both in terms of goods traded and services traded? Again, the, the pandemic has been tricky uh, in terms of its effects. Yes, so what in, in this work that we're doing, one, one is also looking at the impact with the rest of the world. There's not much evidence of an increase in trade with the rest of the world. Now, obviously, if the share with the EU is going down, in some sense, corresponding to the share with the rest of the world must conversely be going up. But what other evidence has shown is that as a result of Brexit, UK total trade with the EU and the rest of the world may be down by as much as 15%. So UK trade has suffered in total as a result of Brexit, it appears, but also UK trade has suffered in particular with the EU. As I said, that seems to be worse on imports than exports. Now, that's quite interesting because if you'd ask people in kind of December of last year, sorry, December of the preceding year, so just over a year ago, what they would have expected, most people would have expected a bigger hit on exports than on imports. What's happened appears to be the reverse. And the hit on exports primarily occurred in January of last year, so a year ago. And since then, for many sectors, it has recovered, not for all. And that's quite important to understand as well. So it's not just that exports are down with the EU. For some sectors, they're down by a lot. In textiles, clothing and leather, they could be down by as much as 60 or 70 percent. That's a big, big decline in trade. And just to be clear, that is uh, trying to, to separate out the effect of the, of the pandemic. This, 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 you think these are underlying effects? Yes, absolutely. This is by controlling for the effect of the pandemic. Nevertheless, in some sectors, exports are down significantly. In others, they've recovered. Whereas for imports, we see that they're down mm. pretty much across all sectors and substantially. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting idea, isn't it? I'm not sure that anybody in the UK understood how much Britain had been absorbed into the EU and that perhaps outside it would be seen as too small a market to sort of bother with, um, you know, if I can put it that way. Look, obviously, the, the focus of the government, a lot of businesses in Britain, is on growth and is on looking for new markets. Have the trade deals that the government's managed to do with some parts of the rest of the world um, landed us any significant benefits? I mean, what I've read so far in the last few months, Australia and so on, the deals aren't going to make that big a difference. What's your view? Essentially, I agree with what you've just said. So what the UK has done is, as a member of the EU, when we were a member of the EU, we were part of a whole bunch of free trade agreements. Most of those, the UK government has been very successful in what's called rolling these over. And so essentially trying to continue the sorts of arrangements that we had with those countries as a member of the EU, now as an independent trading nation. Now, in those deals various reasons are not quite as good as what we had before, but by and large the government has done a good job of rolling these over. And some of the important ones, such as with Canada and Korea, need to be renegotiated within a year or two. So they were, if you like, temporary rollovers. In terms of new deals, we actually really only have one new deal, and that's the one with Australia. Now, the government's own estimates of the Australia deal suggest it might 
increase GDP by 0.01% of GDP, i.e. by a tiny amount. So there's no way that signing these deals is going to compensate for the loss of access to the EU market. What about some of the big things we're negotiating? So we're in uh, negotiation to join the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Lots and lots of big economies, but unfortunately they're big economies which are a long way away. Could, could that be usefully, significantly useful for the UK? I think it could be useful for the UK. I don't think it will begin to compensate for the loss of uh, access to the EU market or the uh, greater difficulties in trading with the EU. So... Of course, it is sensible for the UK to try and sign free trade agreements with other countries to establish closer trading relationships. But as you have quite rightly said, many of these countries are a long way away um, and distance matters in terms of trade. And with regard to a number of these countries, for example, in the CPTPP, which you mentioned, we already have free trade agreements with these countries. So joining the CPTPP will help, but will not help um, sufficiently to compensate for the loss of access to the EU market. Now, the one deal that, in principle, could make a bigger difference to the UK would be if the UK could sign a free trade agreement with the US. And indeed, if you look back to a year, two years ago, this was a top priority for the UK government. However, it's quite clear that the Biden administration is not interested at the moment in negotiating or signing a deal with the UK. And I think there's very little likelihood that this could happen. You know, roughly 15% of our trade is with the US. So signing a deal with the US could be a big gain, but that's not going to happen in the near future. OK. You mentioned that service is hugely important for Britain and in particular the City of London. Uh, but... You know, the the concern within the square mile where I'm sitting right now is that, um, you know, more openness and more access to the EU is not likely to come. How how do you view now the kind of uh, the plight maybe in terms of financial services exports? So I think that financial services firms did a lot of adjustment um, prior uh, to Brexit, they already knew that there was going to be consequences, and they rearranged, the, you know, how they organised their their work and their, their, their trade and so on. I think there's going to be an ongoing move away from the UK towards the EU in financial services. There have been reports in the press, which seem credible to me, that because of COVID, some of these transitions, some of this relocation of staff that was being planned was delayed. Yeah. Um, because of the you know, lockdown and working more from home, and that as we emerge from the pandemic or learn to deal with the pandemic better, there may be a greater shift away from the UK. And I think that's probably generally true, not just in services, but also in goods. Yeah. At the moment, we only have data for the first eight months or so, but I think the impact of the increased barriers between the UK and the EU mm-hmm. There'll be a drip, drip, drip of these changes over the next few years with changes in investment flows, relocation of firms and so on over time. And Michael, just briefly, um, some people wanted to see a post-Brexit Britain pursuing a, a Singapore on Thames model. Uh, are we doing that? Or, or is there a model that we're pursuing or is it just a, a, a mess of a strategy? Um, I would say it's far more the latter. There's no evidence that we're pursuing a really sort of Singapore on Thames model here at all. 
Um, you know, there were supposed to be all these benefits from deregulation and so on, from being able to, you know, introduce our own rules and regulations on things. And I believe that last week Boris Johnson talked about being able to put the crown on the, the pine glass and so on. In fact, there was nothing to stop the UK from putting the crown on the pine glass before as a member of the EU. So there's no big evidence of regulatory changes or regulatory benefits from leaving the EU at the moment. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.